It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, May the 31st, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on uh, Apple Podcast. Pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. We're on Spotify, we're on iHeartRadio, and of course, if you want to send me a note, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Welcome in, everybody, to another edition of the podcast. It's been a little over a week as I had the last time we had done our uh, show just before the Memorial Day holiday weekend. I hope uh, the holiday weekend was uh, very relaxing for you and, and went well. And of course, as I come to you uh, on this Sunday night uh, with so much going on in the world, at times it it appears to be trite what we're doing here. And, and you wonder, you know, do people really with all the the things that are going on around you, do they really want to engage in a in a sport that's not even being played right now that has its own level of negativity? But I always believe that the reason you come here is to uh, escape, and and hopefully we can do that over the course of the next uh, hour or so. But very special guest that I had a chance to catch up with earlier in the week, and you'll hear that conversation. You guys know him, uh, the Mets' longtime public relations director. He just came out with a book called Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. Jay Horwitz and I spoke about his new book just a few days ago, so you'll hear that in a little bit, Jay's first time on the show. I don't think Jay does a ton of interviews at all, so... Uh, I know he's been on some other podcasts. I'm sure I haven't, you know, checked every outlet he's been on. I'm sure he's he'll be on at WFAN and some of the other major uh, outlets. But may- maybe we are one of the first ones to have Jay. So interesting conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. That'll be coming up in just a few. Where we are now, uh, over the last uh, week or so since we met, is uh, not much different than what I've been saying since the start of all this. It's very hard for me to take seriously any kind of continuation of sports when, quite honestly, the country from an economic and now from a a social perspective in so much disarray that I question sometimes how important sports is, how that's going to really bring this all together. Uh, because that's what everybody keeps talking about when it comes to baseball, how baseball could bring this all together. But I think the issues are so much deeper out there than just that pie-in-the-sky narrative that you know, baseball and American pie, you know, everything will be okay uh, opening day, whenever that would be of the baseball season. With that being said, I think it's very important to understand that this situation between the owners and the players, put the outside-the-world stuff away between the owners and the players, um, be looked at a lot differently. Everybody's looking at it as, well, owner's bad. They're getting rid of minor leaguers. They want to cut players' salaries. And that's largely what you're going to hear from, I think, the average fan uh, uh, in the sense where they're mad because they see sometimes the players as maybe the serfs. And a lot of times they are. You know, old book, Lord of the Realms, Lord and Serfs. 
very well-paid serfs, and not all of them are well-paid, but well, but but well-paid serfs. So nobody really feels good for the owners. There is a smattering of people that are going to look at the players and say, "Hey, this is again greedy players." Especially when guys like Max Scherzer, who's made millions of dollars, comes out and and basically says, "I'm not taking any further pay cut." And in the backdrop of 40 million unemployed, civil unrest in cities, businesses now that were destroyed by the government, now being destroyed physically by people, probably many never to come back again. Very hard to feel sorry for anybody making even the league minimum of a half million dollars. And someone who will will get most of that and probably get that and many more dollars in the future. But This is a lot deeper than just those two sides because right now, if the Players Association and the owners are not looking at the media and they're not looking at the tea leaves and they're not looking at what happens, if they cannot come through with a season for anything other than, hey, health-wise we can't do it and now with all this civil unrest, it's just not safe for our players to be going into some of these cities which I don't think will be the case. I think you'll see this stuff die down, as it always does, uh, for after a day or two. And then the t- conversation will continue, and it'll be in a different format. If those two reasons are why they can't have a season, that's fine. But the media will not forgive these two parties for not coming to an agreement. And they're not going to care who's right and who's wrong. And you can see it right away, the, the articles, whether it's the New York Post... ESPN, whatever you're listening to, they are ready to punish the sport. And that's the big key here. You hear reports there are many owners who want to not have a season because the losses will be less than the losses if they do have the season. I, 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 to a certain degree, once you go out there with a product without fans, I could believe to a certain degree that that's going to be the case. But if you think, and I think it's been... Uh, put out there by, you know, I don't know if it's Davidoff or Sherman or Buster Olney. I don't know. Someone said this. You want to save five, uh, you know, five dollars, you know, a dollar today to lose five dollars tomorrow. That's what's going to happen. Because if you think for a minute that this is going to be like 94, 95, where the, the public relation black eye of the sport took a hit, you haven't seen anything yet. The media will eviscerate the sport. They'll go out of their way to destroy the sport. Believe me. And there'll be those longtime people like me and the guys who have covered the game for years and years. We don't want to see the sport leave. It's a great sport. We love it. But it'll be looked at as everything that's wrong with this country. It'll be lumped in with some of the negativity that you're seeing out there over the weekend with what's going on in various cities. They will never let this go down. They will never let anyone forgive this. And know this, and the players better listen to this, because part of this is the players better understand that these pay cuts, which, qu- quite honestly, you guys, and I know I've been criticized on social media for this, saying I'm an owner's guy. I'm not an owner's guy. I mean, if anything, I'm more of a player's guy because I know I've I've had relationships with players and I've heard the plight that they've gone through, and I completely get how some of these guys. I you know I know a guy that would would have been 110 percent totally bankrupt if he didn't get called up one weekend in June of a of a season, had a good weekend, and then wound up having a pretty decent big league career. Uh, for quite quite a number of years. That's how this this game goes. This is how how close to the margin of error between success and failure for some people could be. So I'm I'm am you know I'm I'm a I'm a player's guy, but I also know 
business and common sense. And if you are losing, and you know, I don't know if the, the owners will ever give you the true numbers. No private business ever gives public the true numbers. I don't know how many private businesses give the government for their taxes the true numbers. But anyway, if it's 40%, if it's 30%, even if it's 25%, who knows how much of the revenue comes from paying customers? That's a lot different than the picture that was painted back on March 26th when all of us, myself included, said, and and think about it, Angel Hernandez, the, the one that we hate, said, we'll see in June when it came to baseball. And everyone scoffed, myself included, going, here's a guy that's never right. You know, we'll be down two, maybe three weeks. We'll be back May 1st. Everything will be back to normal. And, and we didn't know how deep the politics would have went on this thing, where this went from a health crisis to a political situation to a tool for politicians to now whatever the hell is going on out there. Um, if you, you know, so much has changed since then that you cannot take whatever was proposed and ever was agreed upon back on March 26th and say, well, that's what it's got to be because there is going to be an impact. And the other thing that the players have to understand and the agents who don't want to understand this because it's impacting their bottom line is that the experience of going to the game, that's not just this year that's going to be different. That may be in the coming years going forward, maybe forever. Remember, everything that's coming out of this, especially because now that this whole situation has become political, will go towards changing the way that you behave and are looked at publicly, and it does not lend itself to having a comfortable type of experience leaving your home and especially going into large events like a baseball game. Whether it be masks that, believe me, in a hot summer day, those will become very uncomfortable very quick while you're sitting there. Or temperature checks or contact tracing or all these things that are going to become very controversial. You haven't seen anything yet. Believe me, you haven't seen anything yet. Because as you start to get people going into areas and having their quote-unquote rights taken away, whatever they look at, you're going to start to see them say, why am I doing this to myself? whether it be restaurants, and I know I'm getting off the topic, and I told you as I came in, this is not about the world. I'm, I'm having you have an escape. But what I'm trying to say to all of you is that the real world now is infringed upon our fantasy land. Candy land that we live in, the toy store that we live in, that every week that you come here and we talk and we talk about issues and get fired up, they're intersecting in a big way. And they're intersecting economically now. And both of these parties better realize that. The media, which I have told you probably since day one on this program, has always been out for themselves. It has always taken stories and not reported them in a way where it's actually the story. It's about what could create the best narrative to create the most agitation to sell the most eyeballs. Because content doesn't matter anymore. Nobody believes that the public, the large majority of the public, can handle intelligent debate, intelligent content. You don't give anybody a try. You let the minority become the majority, and that's always really what the problem has been in this country. We take the minority, blow it up, make it the majority, and ruin everything for everybody else. So that's what they're going to do with this. If this season doesn't go off, and there could be very legitimate economic reasons for both sides for it to not go off, then it's going to be about the sport being dead. They're going to want to put this sport with horse racing, and all the other boxing, what's that were popular 50, 60, 70 years ago. They want to put that in, that in that closet. They want this to be about the NFL and the 
you know, glitz of the NBA and, you know, uh, you know, hockey will be for those niche people. We don't need baseball anymore. That's, that's the death now. They are going to write baseball's death. And you're not going to have maybe Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire to save you this time. I don't know if you have the ability in the short run to turn it around. Look, in Boston and New York, L.A., this isn't going to be a problem. I really believe if you didn't have a single game for the Mets and Yankees in this town, and the next game would be April 1st or end of March or whenever opening day 2021 would be, the fans would be back. Now, attendance, and that's why economically this is not just about this year, that's a different ball game. Because to pack that stadium, you better really have a product. And even if you have a good team, a 100-win team like the Yankees were last year or a team like the Mets that was in a wild card race, if you think for a minute people are going to go to the ballpark on a Wednesday night when it's raining and chilly, and they may or may not play the game, and they're going to go out there to get their temperature checked, wear masks, and sit there and get harassed because they're too close to somebody, they ain't doing that. They'll stay home and watch it on TV, and the experience will be just as good, if not better. But it'll be different. The game will be different. The revenue streams will be different. There is a, a ripple effect on all that. Because if the paying customer can't have the experience that they have had in the past, where baseball games were as much about gatherings, think of the seven line, as it was about going to see the product on the field, it will change the revenue of this sport forever. It will change the revenue of all sports. You just haven't heard it with the other sports yet. It'll come. You think if the NFL, which is the charm league out of all of this, which may very well whistle past the graveyard, have the Super Bowl before the pandemic, and have opening day, opening weekend after it, and for the most part, except for the fact that they may have to dial back on attendance, which will be a big deal for the NFL, but there's so much off-the-field component to the NFL that maybe they could actually take that blow a little bit more so, less games, things like that, than your than any other sport. I mean, that's the only sport that's been able to probably say through this, we haven't really been affected. Yeah, the draft is affected. That's a big deal. I'll tell you what, every sport would take their draft going virtual over what's been going on for the other three major sports out there. Once two sports that seasons and playoffs are destroyed, seasons that were going a certain way, potentially destroyed, baseball that you know very well may have given us three weeks of spring training, four weeks of spring training, uh, exhibition games to, to fill our palate for 2020. All of that means you've got to come to some sensible agreements. And I saw late tonight, I saw the players' proposal. I think 114 games is too much. I think playing the postseason in November is too much. I think it's absurd that you want players. Players don't want to play because they have someone at home that's at risk or they have somebody uh, that they, they, you know, they're close to, they got to spend time with, or they're afraid of getting sick. They have every right to say, I don't want to play. And if you want to put things that are protect them, it's a federal law that if somebody has a coronavirus situation, that's a legitimately a coronavirus situation, you can't take their job away. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing it. And it's deeper than just that. But you can't. They're protected. And I'm sure it's the right thing to do as the owners that if somebody doesn't want to play or as the team, I wouldn't release them. I'd at least hold their spot in like kind of an inactive list so that they could give the opportunity to come back next year. Would I pay them? No. Would I give them service time? No. I would not. I'm sorry. You don't play. You don't get paid. You don't get service time. That's one of the proposals. The service, it's absurd. The games are too long. It's too and and what the players' association is doing is taking the owners' pro owner, very heavy owner proposal, and doing a player heavy proposal. Look at it. 
and they hopefully they could come somewhere in between. You don't want to do 81, 82 games. You want to get it to 100. Mm, maybe. You're going to have to play doubleheaders. I am not a proponent for this season going into anything more than maybe slightly past Halloween. I've never been a fan of baseball going into November. Baseball should not last past Halloween. I'm sorry. November 1st, it's over. Move on. I mean, you're less than a month away from Thanksgiving. You're six or seven weeks away from Christmas, for crying out loud. You, you, you can't. And it's all about the postseason anyway. You're having expanded uh, playoff teams. Make it more about the postseason. Make it a sprint. This is not a season that's normal. And, and personally, 114 games, that would at least put you more towards what happened in 1981. It'll be more like that strike season. So maybe the asterisk that we haven't talked about, which will be a conversation once we get past all this and we know there's a season, maybe there'll be less of an asterisk because I don't think anybody's taken away the 1981 World Series from the Dodgers or the pennant. The Yankees still calling that pennant in 1981. Nobody's taken that away. And I wanted it to be like that. We talked about that. But you have to have the season start in June sometime. It's over. That, that ship has sailed. You haven't even got spring training yet. You need to make a deal over the next week to 10 days to even think about having a spring training because now you can get the players going out there. And this is all a risk. The less time you have these guys to prepare and get ready for the season, the more that your assets, your highly paid expensive assets, will get hurt. And and that, to me, is the situation. And somebody asked, because the last time I talked, I kind of ridiculed. I got an email over at MikeSilvatTalkingMetsPodcast.com. They had asked why, you know, whether I was for a season or not for a season. And I thought to myself, well, I've been pretty clear about me being for a season. But then I thought back, I have talked more about my issues with proposals. And the last time we, we come together, before the whole Memorial Day edition of the show that we did a week ago, was that I was pretty critical of some of the above and beyond safety measures that are put in place, like staying a little bit further away from the runner at second base in between pitches to keep yourself safe. I mean, that to me is borderline absurdity. There's a lot of window dressing that's out there. In a lot of ways, masks to me in a lot of situations, if you really boil it down to my personal feeling, I have no issue if it makes other people feel uh, safe around me just to keep the peace because I don't want to get you know get into it. If you want me to wear it, so be it. But I don't think it's making all that much of a difference. If it is, it's very minimal because when it's all said and done, we've been living without masks for years. People get sick and they get better. And in this situation, it's a little bit different. But I think if you try to, it's like driving a car. If you try to be perfectly safe so you don't get an accident, Eventually, you're going to get an accident by trying to be overly safe. But anyway, I am for a season. I am for a season. As long as it's a reasonable amount of games, it's as close to the actual product as possible. doesn't have to be with fans, but as close to the actual product as possible. And the safety measures don't take away from what is the heart and soul of the game. The more that you tear it down with silliness with carnival home and derbies to the, uh, you know, the side games to over-the-top safety measures by just saying, hey, move away from the second baseman. Don't give high fives. Uh, you know, no spitting. Things that, just like, these are window dressing for the public. And maybe you have to do them in the short term to, you know, really get people off your back. But now people want the support. Maybe you have a chance to say, hey, this health and safety is way second right now, especially after this weekend about what's going on in the world. If you can do things where it's a semi-normal sport, just with a truncated season, 
and, and a little bit more of an expanded playoffs, I'll accept it. I don't know if everything that comes out of this I'd want as, you know, i.e. expanded playoffs I'd want permanently, but I would accept it, and I would be okay with it. So that's my answer. I'm, I want a season, but I want it where it's reasonable, where it's as close to a truncated version of the product as possible. I, from the start, I'm not worried about going out and going to a ball game and getting sick. I'm not. That's me personally. I'm sure some of you or many of you act at, are different. I live my life going out is I take precautions in every single aspect of my life. And I really believe that a lot of the things that happen, uh, I can't control a lot. I can control certain things. I can't control a lot. If shutting down the world, as you've seen, you think that's an idea that changed things for the good. Well, you're seeing this weekend what the result of it is, the simmering of tensions and hostilities. And if you think economically that was good, there's 40 million people that will tell you otherwise. Forley's in New York. Longtime baseball bar. Gone. New York City's ecosystem changed forever. Many businesses, if they do come back, it'll be years because of the way that the office situation has been. And if you're mad right now, and I'll leave you with this, if you're mad about minor leaguers getting released, and you're mad that there's no baseball, and you're mad at the owners for that, you know what? Historically... Those are the guys that have manipulated the sport, collusion, everything. Not all those guys who own teams now were around in 1985 when they started colluding, when Bud Selig was an owner, and then Bud Selig became the commissioner and, and continued a lot of this bad behavior. What you should be mad at is the politicians and the public health officials, each who use this crisis to drive personal agendas and use it as a tool to further their careers. And that's why you have 40 million unemployed. That's why you have a sport that has had to hurt up-and-coming prospects, who many of which weren't going to make. I mean, the guys that got released, the odds of any of them making uh, a team were very low. And truthfully, they'll probably have an opportunity, if they want, to make a run at it next spring, if they're good enough. You have to get a real job, which is not easy now. Now, that's even the worst part. They can't even get a real job. So much bad has come from the reaction to what has happened. In a lot of ways, an immature reaction that the media has fueled. That now you're seeing the residual. What did you think back in March? There wasn't a residual effect for shutting down the economy, for shutting down the sport for months, for taking fans away? Did you not think? What, you know, I love when people say, well, the owners should just, you know, all those profits, like Scott Boris said over the last few years, they should just pour it back in. Well, there's a lot of debt financing out there for stadiums and whatnot. Also, if these guys have other businesses under their portfolio, do you think it's fair for those people in those businesses to be impacted, to take money away from those businesses, to pour into the baseball team so you could be happy that minor leaguers weren't released? Those people then won't lose their jobs. Nobody is going to put their personal money into something that doesn't make sense financially. There's going to be collateral damage. That's the real world. That's life. You have to grow up and accept it. And if that's the worst thing that comes out of this whole thing with baseball, walking away where minor leaguers were, you know, shaft, which I feel bad for them, consider it lucky for the sport because right now the sport is on a situation where the media's got their guns loaded, for lack of a better word. They've got their proverbial guns loaded, and they're ready to go at it with this sport and kill it. Kill it forever. And if that's what you want, well... You know, the players and the owners could get that done pretty quickly by saying no season. Provided that that no season is because of them and because they can't come to the middle. There's an easy way to come to the middle. All you have to do is think about what's going on around you. Think about those 40 million unemployed. Think about those small businesses that are never going to come back. 
Think about what happened to them and how they have to pick up the pieces. And consider yourself lucky that the pieces you're picking up in this game are of a hell of a lot richer than anything that people are going to pick up in the next near-term future that have lost their job or have a business that may or may, never, may, may, or may not come back, but in a lot of ways, depending on what kind of business, will not come back for a long time. All right, let's get to something more positive. Jay Horwitz, longtime Mets director of public relations, has a book out, Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. He'll be with us and more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. I'm joined by, and it's a great pleasure. I've had a chance to meet him, and, and if you're a Mets fan, he's in a lot of ways is recognizable as Doc Good and Dal Strawberry, Noah Syndergaard. Uh, used to be the director of public relations for many decades and VP of media relations, and he works with alumni now. He has a book, Mr. Met, How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family, to generations of big leaguers, Jay Horwich. Jay, uh, welcome to the show, and, and let me start by Pleasure saying Pleasure to be here with you, Mike. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jay. And, and I'll tell you this. How does it feel to be on the other side in the sense where you're the guy always setting up the interviews? You're the guy yeah, having It's very to, awkward, to be deal. honest with you. Very, very awkward. I'm not used to doing this, but, you know, I tell you, this is probably the only book I'll ever write, so might as well get used to it for a little bit. I'm not, it's not going to be any book two or sequel, so just uh, – Book one is good enough. It's a little awkward. I, I got to tell you, though, Mike. Well, they do say that the sequel never lives up to the first one, so that's good that you're well, only going to have one. But Yeah, one is enough. One is enough. One of the things I've, I think the fans, they see you on TV, and obviously they see you in the background, and, and at times, and we'll go back to when you were, you know, back all the way to 1980 when you started running the public relations department. Give an idea to that the listener who may know Jay Horwitz, but it's a hard job, and I and from my perspective, it's a job that you can't plan your day. What was a day in the life for you, especially in those those yeah. years when it was, yeah. you, know, you were really in the in the sauce there with the team? One of the things is real, you know, the press want at you, the media wants at you, and you have to you, know, you work for the front walls. You have to take care of them. So it's sometimes it's really hard. You know, you have to understand that you know, the the balance of the players, the media, the front office. And that's the most difficult part of the job. The one thing I try to do, Mike, in my years is to be honorable, not to lie, to tell the truth. Especially in this kind of a market in New York, if you if you fib or get caught in a lie, your credibility is shot and really your job is shot. Since for my four decades with the Mets, I've always tried to tell the truth, and, and that kind of gets you by. When, when you develop a trust with the players, you, the players have to know that you're, you're going to take care of them, you're going to be, be with them. The front office has to, has to know you have the team interests at heart, and the media's got to know you're not going to lie to them. So it's just the balancing act that the PR person's got to go through to really just to be, be honorable, tell the truth, and don't lie. But especially in, in New York, if you work in a market, there's one paper, maybe you get away with fibbing a little bit, but you can't get away with that here in New York. 
Not, not at all. And I'll tell you what, I always think is a little bit of sales in your job because I was re- recently reading during the pandemic, going back to some old books and, and the worst team money can buy came up and you and I talked how crazy a season that was. But I read some stories from Bob Clappish about how you knew you wanted some guys to talk. Some guys don't want to talk. Some guys don't get it. You got to be a bit of a salesperson sometimes. You got to make to, them get to it. Know the player, you have to know the players on your team. Like, um, you know, like after a game in the eighties, like Keith Hernandez was, was to be the spokesman. He he took care of a lot of the guys in the locker room. What some guys will only do want to do one interview. Like after the seventh game in the World Series, Gary Carter did six one-on-one interviews with TV and newspaper guys, and that doesn't happen today. You just got to know the know the guys, know them to make up his team, and know what the player can handle, and really not try and overstep or burden him with something he's not going to be comfortable with. It's, it's just a question of knowing the makeup of the guys on your team. At J underscore Horowitz PR on Twitter, Mr. Met, how a sports mad kid from Jersey became like family, the generations of big leaguers. I was, uh, I was, there's a book called The Toughest Job in Baseball by Peter Pascarelli, who highlighted the Pirates and, and Jim Leland and managing. And I'm looking back, early 90s book, looking at how the relationship and how the structure was. Media would go into the, the manager's office, and it was like a bull session. Now it's like a press conference. Right. It's changed a lot. Yeah, is and, that good? Is that bad? It's really different. Talk about that. No, it's different. You know, a lot of the veteran writers complain they don't have the accessibility to before, but most teams, you know, like we, SNY uh, does our game. So the manager goes into a conference room with SNY in the background. The Phillies have a network. The Cubs have a network. The White Sox, Dodgers, yeah, I can't remember all the teams. But it has changed and really isn't the accessibility as it was before. And the thing that's really changed for me the most, Mike, is the Twitter. When I first started in, in 1980, you wrote press releases. And something happens on the next day. But now it's, it's instant. You know, we said we had press seminars with the guys. Be aware who you go up on an elevator with, who you're eating with, because it'll show up on Twitter. Look what happened to Michael Phelps a couple of years ago. He got caught taking a picture and it almost ruined his career. So the Twitter and, and, and the accessibility and everything is a little bit more orchestrated now than it was when I first started. And it really has changed in that respect. Well, reading the book and you talk about it, you would think about being a sports writer. Did that help you in your job uh, dealing with sports writers? Who could be difficult? Let's face it, not just the uh, athletes. That are yeah, what it did, I wrote for a small paper, the Herald News in New Jersey. I actually covered the Jets after the Super Bowl year. And the one thing it did, it, you know, I try to take care of all the papers the same. New York Times, Brooklyn Weekly, uh, New York Post, uh, Illinois Gazette. You know, coming from a small paper, I just try to, you know, everybody to have a job to do, and I try to not to show any favoritism to the big, bigger papers, to the bigger market guys. I try to treat everybody as equal, and I did that with the players, too, that I, you know, I try to take care of the 25th guy on the team like I did the number one guy, and, you know, it, you know treat people like you would want to treat yourself, and that's, that was my home thing going forward, Mike. Sid Finch, there's a generation of fans who don't know about Sid Finch, and you right. talk about it, and, and, and I was younger, I was eight years old when that came out, but it was this big story, it was a, a hoax, but it was a fun one, it wasn't something meant to be mean-spirited, think about what you had to do to pull that off, and could you do that today? Think about how trying to no, do that today with do, all the information. never could do that today with Twitter, you could never do that today. So um, this is the, the winter of 85, the spring of 85, Frank Cashin was our GM at the time, we get a call from... George Clifton and Mike Mark Mulvoy from Sports Illustrated. They had this idea that the Mets were going to sign this six foot six, uh, tall skinny guy 
who threw a 190-mile-an-hour fastball, and he came from some far-off country. And the story broke on April 1st, 1985. And the first paragraph of the story, it details, this is an April Fool's joke, but people didn't, you know, pick up on it. And, uh, uh, you know, the late Mel Stoddermeyer, we had a lot of fun with it. When the story came out, we, we had a, a pitching cage at St. Petersburg. And uh, we, we said we were, Sid was warming up there. And we came out and have a press conference. And we built a built burnt a hole in the glove of Ron Reynolds, one of our catchers at the time. He said this was Sid's um, fastball. And, you know, we, the players were tuned to it. And I remember the day the story came out, I got a call from one of the editors of the uh, of one of the New York papers yelling at me, how can I give this story to a weekly magazine? We covered the Mets daily. You should have given it to everybody. I said to the guy, wouldn't you be upset if you had a good exclusive like that? And I, and I sold you after other papers. But we kept it going for a day or two, and finally, it, you know, people, you know, understood it was no Sid Fitch, but, but it was fun while it lasted. Never in a million years could you do this with Twitter or, you know, all the Instagram, all the other stuff, they, TikTok or TikTok, whatever the hell you call it, you know. I mean, <laughs> uh, no, it was great. It was, it was fun. It's probably one of the nicest things have been part. Like you say, Mike, we didn't hurt anybody. It was a, for a day or two, it was, uh, we kind of shocked the baseball world. When you look at your time with the Mets and you bring it up, there's been times where, and I think about watching the last dance about the Bulls, they were a celebrity team. You had a team like that in the 80s. And when Piazza came and, and being in New York, you, you, you have that. It's different for you being, and not to take away from your colleagues, but what your job was, it wasn't just about baseball. It's about other things, good or bad. And it's almost like a celebrity thing. And you had, of course, off the field stuff. And it must have kept you up at night and made your job harder. Did it, did you have to adjust when, especially when the team became kind of a, a page six, for lack of a better word, team in the eighties? Well, let's put it this way. I, uh, it was always interesting coming to the park in those days in the eighties. You never knew what was going to happen. They, they kept, kept me on their toes and, you know, we had a lot of different personalities on the team, but you know what though? Stuff that happened. Some of the guys got into trouble, you know, Doc and, and, and Darrell and Keith to an extent. But they've all righted the ship. They've all gone to great careers. Darrell and his wife are ministers. Uh, you know, Dwight does a lot of husp- uh, uh, work with hospitals and schools. And Keith has gone on to be a great broadcaster. So, you know what? They, they, they kept you busy. And one thing about that team, even though we had some difficulties, none of the guys ever ran from anything. And that's why I think all of them, the people from that team, are all beloved figures because they stood up, faced the music when things were bad, and they just were... You know, they just took, you know, took the amendments for lack of a better word. That's why they, you know, I think the meeting, the fans still adore that 86 team because we, you know, we got into a lot of fights on the field. Uh, you know, the, the teams, they hated us initially because we were cocky and we were bold. You know, from our manager, Davey Johnson, was cocky like that. But we backed it up, won 116 games, you know, came back from a, you know, uh, two out, uh, two strike deficit in the 10th in the inning of game six, rallied to win. So it's a team that will always be together. It's probably, you know, my favorite team because I was closer to those guys than any other team because my age difference started. So it's something it's good to be a part of that 86 team. Former Mets GM Steve Phillips has said he thinks the Mets job, you know, whether it's the GM, the manager, the players, is the toughest job sometimes in baseball and in New York. You're expected to be like the Yankees. You don't have the same resources as the Yankees. And at times, and I'm curious your thoughts, uh, especially now where 
stories could kind of be molded like clay and you could create a narrative. Do you think the Mets get fair coverage? And do you agree with the, your former GM that it's a toughest I, job maybe in New York? I, I think it's any, any job in New York is a tough job. You know, Yankees, Mets, Knicks, Rangers. Uh, and the thing is, I've always found that, you know, if you win, they're fair. Your people are fair. You have to win. You have to be successful in the market. And, you know, I mean, if you get criticized, you know, you get criticized. But I've always, you know, try to tell our players, you know, to stand up, you know, what what you do. If you give up a home run to lose a game, to make an error, stand in front of your locker. To an extent, the one thing I was proudest of, of, most of our guys did that through the years. Very few guys ran and hid in the locker room. And But it's a question of, you know, you know, the Yankees and the Yankees have never really – you know, I mean, we we play like eight, nine times a year. If we take care of our business, I think I think a lot of New Yorkers are late Mets fans because we're like the lunch pail team. We're the team, the nine to five team that people want to identify with. So I, as, as much success as the Yankees have had, you know, I, I, mean, I think we're in a good place now where we are with the current team. We can, you know, put a couple of winning seasons together and get in the playoffs. I mean, I think we'll get the fans back, but you have to win. New York is a success that you have to win, you have to produce. If you don't produce, there's a lot of more eyes on you here, and that's what I've found through the years. Jay, you know, this is a job for you. You did mention in the 80s that you were close to age and close to that team. Do you live and die out there with the the fans? Are you the same way? Is it different for you because you work for the team? And you obviously have a personal relationship, so you want these guys to win, but how is it for you, I've always wondered, because you're kind of in a position where you're a work for the team, but you could be a fan. You're not. You could be. You could be biased. It's kind of it's double things. I'm a fan, but I, but I wanted to do my job. Like when we were in the, the World Series. I was rooting for us to win, but I wanted to make sure everybody did the interviews. That somebody did something good or bad in the game. We were by their locker. If if uh, ESPN needed somebody for interview, I want, want to make sure we we're there. So I rooted. I rooted. I rooted. But I try and let my fandom not interfere with doing my job. I always try to be a professional, try to do my job. And, you know, even if we lost the game, I didn't want anybody from ESPN or Fox or MLB Network to say, well, Jay didn't do his job. He didn't produce when he had to. You know, in my area, you just got to, you know, do the right thing, make sure the players are there for the interviews, get the interviews, people's needs, and, you know, just do the job as a PR director. And, you know, I can't win or lose the games, but I can do my job. And that's what I really I just, You know, you can't be, you know, at a, a normal season, you go to Florida like the last week in January, and you're there till October, and you live and die with these guys. You you have to root. If you if you don't want to root or wish a guy some success, you shouldn't be in that kind of a job. And I've always been you know a very passionate fan, but you have to control it. Like in the press box, they never would yell or cheer when something happened. You gotta kind of cheer inwardly, and that's you know that's how you have to do your job. One of the good things is when I talk to you, Jay, when I've met you, you you have. It's, yeah, there's 86, there's there's 99, there's all these great seasons, but you could talk as easily about an obscure season and an obscure player. A couple of quick questions. One, give me a season that may not be obvious to the fans that was a fun season for you, maybe for something personal, maybe for something about the team. Maybe they didn't win, maybe they were bad. Was there a season that stands out for you that's not the obvious that well, fans would think? Probably my, my first season, 1980. I was a young kid coming from a small school in New Jersey. And Joe Torre really took me under his wing. Uh, on our first road trip to Montreal, he uh, he um, bought me seven of the ugliest cards known to mankind. And he, he he told me what it was like to be in the major leagues. And, and in that group of guys in 1980, we're, you know, I'm still pretty close to them. Like 
you know, Doug Flynn, who um, the second baseman, who signed, uh, uh, you know, used to sing country and western, and he, he, we sang the Loretta Lynn band, and uh, we sang the Oak Ridge Boys. They had a guy, a guy like uh, you know Joe Youngblood, who used to, uh, you know, go hunting with a bow and arrow. And Lemus Dilly was on that team. Lemus Dilly was Derek Jeter before Derek Jeter. I mean, he was a heartthrob, you know, a handsome guy from Brooklyn High School. And they kind of, you know, taught me what it was like to be in the majors. And we had, you know, Dyer Miller. I got a chance to get my friend Dyer. In those days, when you get with the towns like St. Louis and, and Chicago in the spring training, we had cow milking contests. And Dyer was undefeated. He was, I remember, 4-0 and in cow milking contests. So those were the, you know, from the early days, you know, I was especially close to Dave Kingman. You know, Dave was uh, kind of a little bit honorary to press, but for some reason, all we hit it off. And, you know, one even one summer, he stayed at my house. We didn't have a place to live. So, you know, those are the, you know, and, and then it all began to change in, in 83 when, when Daryl came and Keith came the next year, uh, you know, you know, Doc and Ron Darling and Davey. That's when we put together a good stretch uh, of winning from 1984 to 90. You threw some real, you know, there's Mets fans in the audience that probably are like, Joel Youngblood, not a popular player, but they bring good memories to uh, fans in right. their childhood right. for something. Is there a player not obvious, maybe it's some of the ones you mentioned, that uh, comes to mind that, you know, you connected with, maybe it was Kingman, but a player that fans wouldn't think about that just stands out to you, uh, that you have something fun to, to say or something interesting that's not the star or the obvious? Um, uh like a, a guy like Daryl Boston, team with I've ever worked with, he's a he's a coach now with the White Sox. And like in the early '90s, we had a kangaroo court in the locker room. Like a lot of teams did, he used to put on his long robes and in long b- 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 hair and robes. And he always included me. You know, he managed to find me for something to make sure I was part of the group. We every three or four weeks we'd have these court sessions. The locker room was shut down, and Daryl would be presiding. He would me for getting too many guys for interviews for for uh, you know he would include me in things like um they would buy me uh you know when Brett Tehaberhang was on the team they they he had a thing one year with San Francisco everybody had to shave your head uh you know and, and we we couldn't get a hair we have to shave your head uh you know to have team unity he included me in that kind of a thing so guys like that they made me feel part of the group and uh, that was the fun part of the job I think one of the cool parts, you know, it's the hardest part. The cool parts of your job is you get to see the country. You get to see all these ballparks, the right. fun ballparks, new ballparks. Take City Field out. Take Shea Stadium out. Is there a city or a ballpark that you really like, you know, maybe more so for a reason or another? I just like Dodger Stadium. It was very, it's very immaculate kept. It's, uh, it was actually in 1962, I think, the first year. And I like Chicago for the food. I love Gino's Pizza. They had great pizza there, and uh, um, and San Diego is always nice for the weather. You can't go wrong with 70 degrees and sunny. And one thing no. I'll say, a former player told me, a bullpen guy said, don't discount those L.A. fans. Those are hardcore fans, and that's a hard place to play. That is not a laid-back crowd. Would you agree with that? That's coming from a former Met from the, that was out there in the bullpen listening to the crowd. Well, I mean, the only thing is they used to leave before the game was over. You know, and they were right. the Dodgers were losing the game in the seventh inning. A lot of times the stands were, were empty. I I never really paid attention because I know New York fans are the best. You know, if you do good, they cheer for you. If you do bad, they boo you. And that's the way it should be. 
I'll leave you with this. So you are a big, and I think the fans know this, a big football fan, big football Giants fan. Being right. that you're in the, in the sports world, you know how hard it is to be an athlete. They're human beings. We forget that. Does it change the way you root for your favorite football team, or do you become that fanatical fan you know, in a positive way more, once you get out be, of there? I, I'm kind of mellowed in old age. Uh, I don't know if you're, t- you're too young to remember. In the late 70s, um, Joe Pisarchi was a quarterback. He uh, handed the ball off or fumbled the ball. Herman Edwards picked the ball up, ran for a touchdown, and the Giants lost on the last play of the game. That game, I broke my binoculars, I broke a wrist, bolted my wrist, and broke my radio at the game. I've mellowed wow. since then. I go to the Giants. I'm really good friends with Pat Hadlin, my counterpart with the Giants, but I root, but I've kind of calmed down a little bit through the years. You uh, are now involved in alumni. You do a great job on yes. your own podcast. Um, do you miss – I mean, you're still involved. Obviously, it's a different role. Do you miss being in the, the action every day, or is it good now to take a different I, I did perspective? First, to be honest with you. I mean, I like to travel. I could come around to be a locker room, but I really feel very comfortable in my role. You know, I could work with a lot of the guys I did with the Gooders and the Strawberries and the Lighters and the, you know, the Tories and the Willie Randolph. So I'm, I'm really good, you know, I mean – the will pods give me a lot of leeway in doing my job, and I'm, I'm really comfortable in what I do. It took honestly it took me a while to get adjusted, not to travel, but I'm I'm in a good place right now. Jay, the book is uh, Mr. Met: How a Sports Mad Kid from Jersey Became Like Family to Generations of Big Leaguers. Good luck with the book. Thank you for being generous okay, with your time. Thanks, I always enjoy seeing you at the ballpark. Everybody, okay. Take okay. care, Jay. Bye, 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 bye. That, that's Jay Horowitz. Jay Horowitz former director of uh, public relations, VP of media relations, does a podcast uh, alumni. Uh, he's got, I mean, that's just a scratch on the surface. I've had a chance to talk to Jay, uh, just sitting next to him for 10 minutes, just bringing up times in Met history, has funny stories, nothing inappropriate, just real funny. And I think you heard some of that there. And uh, I don't, I, it's true. There is a generation of Mets fans that Jay Horowitz is as recognizable uh, then, 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 as much as some of the athletes, some of the the players that are on the team. So, uh, interesting stuff. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, another uh, new guest to the show, and hopefully, you know, maybe we'll have him on again. We'll see if Jay uh, graces us with. Even if he doesn't come out with another book, maybe we'll we'll bring him on to to do some different things at time to time. So, anyway, let's uh, take a quick break. We'll be back with more right after this. Why did things go wrong for the Mets after their 1986 championship? Eric Sherman, author of the book Davy Johnson, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond, joined the podcast and has his theory. After 86, Frank um, started making decisions really without Davy's blessing. And then he brought on um, Al Harrison and McElvain. And it was like Davy calls it the triumvirate. Um, and you know, I kind of think of it more as a three-headed monster. And these guys were making making the shots. They were call, calling the shots um, on player per- personnel. And um, it wasn't always like that. You know, build, go, going into the 86 season and building that team, uh, Davey felt that Wally Backman wasn't good from the right side of the plate. So he asked Frank to go get him Tim Tuffle, and he got him. Um, you know, he felt that um, that you know Hojo wasn't as good from the right side as the left side, so he went out and got Ray Knight. Um, so they worked well together, I think, in the beginning, 
But after 86, for whatever reason, um, maybe it was en- uh, Frank's envy of Davy's success, uh, a little bit of jealousy there. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Hope everybody enjoyed the Jay Horowitz segment. I enjoyed it. You know, I didn't know how that would go. You know, Jay's won that. As I said going into the interview, the segment, that, hey, you're the one usually setting these things up. And and he he basically said, I I don't like doing this. I mean, Jay, he's not a guy that I think enjoys the camera. You can tell, you know, he wants to be kind of in the background. So I thought he did a nice job. I thought he gave you some really interesting nuggets, some players and blasts from the past that I hope you and the audience enjoy. I think I have a, a pretty cross, good cross-culture of Mets fans from different eras. You got a little 1980s Mets flair with some of the names, even Joe Torre. And even for those who watched the Mets in the late 80s, 90s, you heard a Daryl Boston reference. That's one that you probably haven't heard uh, from in a while. So I think Jay gave you a really good feel of his book and what to expect, and it's a I have it. I, I had a chance to get it. It's an easy read. Enjoy it, Mister Met. How a sports mad kid from Jersey became like family to generations of big leaguers. Jay Horowitz is the author, and he says he's not going to have a book too. We'll see. You know, if depending how well this one goes, he may want to do a second one. There's still a lot of history to be written here, as he continues to work for the Mets now an alumni. And if you haven't had a chance, get Jay's podcast. He has a a pretty good podcast where he catches up with many former Mets um, and has conversations with them. So there's that. Like I said at the beginning, this is a critical week. If we're going to have a baseball season, uh, we are now past Memorial Day, the unofficial start of summer. The official start of summer is coming up with the longest day of the year before you know it. Uh, it feels like everything's been frozen since the end of the winter, spring. So we'll see how things go. It is nice to see, despite what's been going on, the, the, the negativity that's been going on through many big cities throughout the nation this past weekend. It's nice to see the weather, at least out by where I am on Long Island, and people getting back out, trying to get on with their lives. And hopefully baseball allows us to get on with uh, engaging with it. And, and like I said, the big thing, the big thing that they need to remember, the owners and the players... I think there is a chasm, and I know that there is ramifications to an agreement now towards what can or can't happen after 2021 when there could potentially be a strike. But if you really want to look at what the real issue is, it's not you, the owners, versus the players. It's the media now standing back, being the arbiter of what is right and just, as they do all the time, and more, more often than not, Their position is self-serving and sanctimonious. But in this position, they're saying, we want the game. We need the game. You don't allow us to have the game because of anything other than A or B, which is out of your control, which is the the virus, which they've already politicized. So they can't really uh, criticize people for that, for not coming back. Or, you know, and this hasn't really been a a situation that has arose, uh, arisen prior to this, but because of social unrest, which... We'll see where that goes. Hopefully that's not going to be something there. Cities continue to burn. If those two things are not on the table, and many believe they won't be, then you need to come back. And if you don't over money, you both are bad. Now, some will get hit more than others. And if the players think, because the fans like to hit the owners, but if the players think they're going to come away unscathed on this, 
when you have longtime union guys like Cone and Glavin saying, watch out, those are guys who, who lost, who went out and lost the season. In the prime of their careers, they lost the season. They lost not a full season, but they lost the season. The Braves, they lost the chance at a championship. Uh, if you're not paying attention to them, then I don't know what to tell you. You gotta, you know, you gotta look at the tea leaves here and know what really is at stake. And don't listen to Scott Boris. Read what the public opinion is here. Don't make a bad deal just to get the game back, but find a way to come to the middle. And if there's owners in that group that really believe shutting the sport down is good, I'd like to see what cities they're in. And if you're as an ownership uh, unit, you need to start thinking about if those guys really should continue to be in the club. Because if they really think for the brand going forward, that's the right thing to do. Um, and they don't want to negotiate, and their whole point behind this negotiation is to shut the sport down, to provide a blockade at every turn possible. Those people don't belong in the club anymore. And I'll tell them this much. You may get your wish. Uh, because even when the sport comes back, with the kind of conditions that will require you going out into public and gathering for a public event, if that happens this year and, and, and hopefully next year, if you think tanking and selling one of these scam rebuilds that have become the norm uh, and building a team from within so the front office could, could play their little fantasy baseball, you'll never you'll see crickets even with you could give the tickets away for free. You'll see crickets in the stands. Warning, I've been talking about that for a long time. And that includes the Mets. You know, depending on this ownership situation is is just as much of an issue with the economy right now. The economy and the coronavirus might ultimately be what knocks out the Will Ponds. I know there's some rumors about a former Yankee maybe buying the team. I'm not getting into that until there's some real, you know, light at the end of the tunnel with something like that. But if you think that they're not, they're exempt from it. Oh, they're, this might be the uh, the Waterloo for the Will Ponds when it comes down to what, uh, what their ownership situation is. So anyway, we've talked a lot about that. I'll let you guys go. Again, I want to thank Jay Horwitz. Check out his book, Mr. Met. How a sports mad kid from Jersey became like family to generations of big leaguers. Love Jay coming on. Always love uh, hearing from him. Of course, you could check me out all the time at Mike Silva Media. You could check me out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. And if you want to send me a note, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope you guys had a good weekend. Hope you enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast very soon. Till then. Be well, everybody.